after I ran the numbers from our realtor, we, we figured out that there was probably about 70 to 80 grand profit to be made here if we just bought the property. Hello, and welcome to Real Estate Investing Deal Deep Dive. I'm your host, Jeremy. The Deal Deep Dive offers lessons learned from Canadian investors while scaling their portfolios. If you're looking to scale your investments, listen to stories from those who have already been there and what they did in your shoes. Manjeet, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, I see you all over social media, educating students, helping people learn how they should be investing in real estate. For those who haven't seen you yet, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Jeremy, for for having me here. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a full-time investor in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I've been investing for probably about 15 years now, about eight years full-time. So I had a job there for a little bit as a correction officer. So that's my background and and started getting a little bit serious at the end of my uh, correctional officer career. And then, yeah, about eight years ago, I took the uh, dive to go full. Okay. What made you make that switch? Uh, you know what? I, I was just in a very toxic environment. If you know anybody works in law enforcement or corrections, policing, probations, it, it can be very, yeah, it can be, it can be a very toxic environment. And at that time I was mainly focusing on flipping and I just saw it as a way out. I just saw it as, you know what, if I keep doing this, keep making profits, that I can eventually leave this career and and just pursue real estate, which was which was what I was already doing on a part time basis. <laughs> Sounds fair. Yeah. So you started flipping. What are you currently doing now? So mainly we do buy and holds now. So we do smaller multifamily. We either find burrs and some older apartment, uh, not apartment, older properties, and renovate them, refi them and then hold them with the joint venture partners. And sometimes we'll hold them on our own, but majority of them are with the JV partners or we'll, we'll get a builder and they'll, they'll build for us and we'll hold it that way as well with the JV model route. Okay. This is, so you're doing new builds as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so awesome. not, not many, but we started getting into it, but majority of our stuff has been pre-existing, like, you know, 1950s and 1950s or earlier that we can basically refi, pull out the investor cash, and so basically for buying it with a private lender, we pay the lender off and then we're just the only ones on property. But depending on the deal and how much the bank will personally lend us, we will buy majority of them with a JV partner. Okay. Out of curiosity, why are you buying 50s and older? Just we've had a lot of 100 year old buildings, right? Turn of the century in 1900s and like it's 2023 already. So these properties, a lot of them that were built in like 1906, 1910, which we had quite a bit of, they were just causing a lot of problems. A lot of the cash flow would be negative and a lot of maintenance issues. So we decided to just get rid of them. That's fair. That's fair. What, what kind of complications do you see in buildings that old? Foundation or... Yeah, foundation, it can be, you know, after after that long, right? If usually you have stacks and you have galvanized, you know, plumbing and so that can cause issues. Yeah, all sorts. I mean, like, you know, just wear and tear over the years, right? So, but I mean, the stuff like furnace, window, stuff like that, that's normal upkeep. But I just find like there can be foundation issues, especially if it's, you bought like a limestone foundation, which which a lot of our properties were at that time. Okay. It wasn't concrete. I haven't seen many limestone foundations. Yeah. Is that yeah, something? Oh, where we are, depending on the area. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of older houses like that. Okay. Do you see any like wooden foundations or cinder block or? We do. Yeah, we do. We didn't have a lot of those, but though, of course they are all around. 
Fair enough. That's what we see lots in Edmonton where I am is lots of cinder block and wooden foundations. So very okay. interesting here you have limestone. Yeah, no, definitely. So uh, no, that's good. Well, I'm glad we uh, I'm glad we sold it off and, and started with a clean slate a couple of years ago. Sounds fair. So what markets are you currently investing in? Uh, we're just primarily here in our backyard. Okay, just Winnipeg. Yeah. Okay. So we'll hop into our first segment here. What was the best deal you've ever done? What was the plan and what went right or wrong? The best deal I ever done. And what, what do you mean by that? As in terms of profit? It could be profit or simply the least amount of headaches or something that went extremely well that you weren't expecting. Yeah. So we did a, we did a deal maybe a few years back that came from one of our private marketing campaigns. So the, the seller called us and, you know, upon first look at it, we thought we could potentially flip it and, uh, you know, flip it to a seller or flip it on the market. But then when I started, you know, actually driving there, I noticed that this property and I looked at the city assessment, it was on a 50 foot lot. So that basically where we live, that's, that's basically like a double lot. And uh, so I, I saw that the potential was actually in the land, not the property. And at that time we weren't doing any builds, but what I ended up doing was after I ran the numbers from our realtor, we, we figured out that, you know, there was probably about 80, 70 to 80 grand profit to be made here if we just bought the property and then just sold it to a builder. So we actually ended up doing that. We bought it, sold it to a builder who paid us about $81,000, more in a matter of a couple of weeks. And they ended up going and demolishing the house, subdividing and building two brand new properties. And honestly, that was that was probably one of our one of our fastest and most profitable deals we've done. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay. Yeah. How, so, is that what you're currently doing? Finding properties like that? No, or... no. This is just we do a lot of marketing. So whatever comes our way. At that time, this was a couple of years ago. So we weren't, if it was now, we would have actually just built that ourselves and got a builder to build something on there. But at that time, that's what we were doing. You know, we were renovating, we were holding, but we weren't doing any land deals. Fair enough. Okay. That does sound like quite the deal here though. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Okay. So looking back on this deal, is there anything that you would do differently? Do differently? Not, not that I can think of. No, I, I think everything that could have gone smoothly, it went smooth. One thing that I did notice, like not notice, but really that was imperative was that how important it is to have a good lawyer, right? To have a good lawyer on your team that can really push the deal through that they can work with the other lawyer. So in our case, it was the the seller and it was the end buyer that we ended up selling to, right? So there was a lot, there were some hiccups, small hiccups along the way because we wanted a big deposit. They didn't want to give a big deposit. And so I, I, having a good lawyer was just making sure that transaction goes smoothly and it closes all the way through because you, know, you, you can have lawyers kill deals. And I've seen that in the market where, you know, they're maybe not on top of their game or they're not, they don't have a good system in place. They don't have a good, maybe assistant. And so things fall through the cracks. Um, or, I mean, they're just not persistent with getting the information we need from the other side. And again, the deal falls through, right? The, the deal breaks. So I've seen that happen too. So I think that was really important that we did have a good lawyer on there. How do you find a good lawyer? How do you find? Well, we've been pretty lucky to to be working with a couple of good ones. We've only worked with like three over the last 15 years. I think if you're new, really just 
one one place we would start is obviously look in your own market right who are other investors you know who are other peers of yours that you've met at events or networking events or social media and really starting there people that getting a referral from people that they've already worked with and asking them like hey who do you know or who do you work with currently that you enjoy that knows real estate law i think that would be the the lowest hanging fruit to start cuz that way you're at least getting an introduction you're not going totally blind and trying to find somebody on Kijiji or on, on Facebook or, you know, on, on the web somewhere. Yeah. That's how you get burned very yeah, quickly. Definitely. Sounds fair. How did you find this builder when, after you had the property locked up? So the builder actually, it was, uh, it was very lucky because when we, we got there and we saw the property, we noticed that, sorry, we noticed that the builder, they were building actually three or four properties on the same street. Mm. So when we were taking off, like after we wrote the contract up and we were taking off, we actually just called the realtors that had this builder's listings. So they were selling their two properties already. So we called the realtor up and we happened to know the realtor. And we said, hey, you know what? We'd notice that your client has a couple of new builds here. Would they be interested in a potential 50 foot? And, and I already knew the answer would be yes. And they called them and they said, yeah, you know, what do you want for it? And we sold it at market value and they, they took it, which was great. So it, it was pretty easy. I mean, that if if we didn't have that there, then of course I would have gone to our our builder database, you know, see what builders we are. And this is so important because if you're in real estate, you know, whether you're investing or you're wholesaling, you just want to have a list of potential investors that you have met throughout the years, right? In an email maybe in an email list or a CRM, because when you do have a deal and you're able to, you want to find a buyer for it, or you want to sell it or whatever the case is, you can at least shoot out an email and get somebody to act on that really quickly. And for us, you know, because we had been in the business so long, we, we probably had close to 300 investors and builders and realtors who also invest that we can always go to and, and try to move a product or, or find a deal if we're looking for a deal. So that would have been our backup option. But for this, again, you know, they had, he was building already on the street. Makes things nice and easy. You mentioned a CRM and a database. What, just for the listeners, what are, what are those? So a CRM is like a, a customer relationship management system. It's something that, you know, it really organizes your business. It organizes your leads, your lead flow, your investors. And instead of having, you know, notes on your phone or on like a, you know, a notepad or whatever, everything's organized in a, like a CRM and you can use a tool and there's, you know, I think there's Salesforce, there's HubSpot, there's Pipedrive. So, and again, there's lots on the market. So that we, we use Pipedrive and we've been using it for years and, and it works well because when, you know, we do have a deal, we want to make sure that it's it's moving forward and we can track it at any uh, any stage in the pipeline of, of our progression. So again, it just helps us keep organized and, and we have our entire business on there. Okay. How would you suggest people go out and actually build up this database? I think for, for us really, it was just in the beginning, it was networking meetings, right? Like uh, networking events, real estate seminars, and where you're just, right, you're meeting people, you're exchanging numbers, your emails, and you're uh, again, you're keeping in contact with them. And then, you know, you're putting them in your CRM, you're putting them on a on an email list. We use Active Campaign, So that's our email list builder, uh, where we basically, again, we accumulate emails that we've sent out and then we usually keep in contact with them with a newsletter 
or updates on our business. So that sort of thing. But for the most part, that's where I would start. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can find advertisements of investors on Kijiji, on Facebook, in social media groups. So there's investor, there's real estate investor leads and contacts everywhere. Sounds fair. Is there a social media group you prefer to hang around with? To hang out with? Not, not really. I mean, we, we run our own group with, there's about 5,000 investors in there now called other people's money, you know, raising capital through private lenders and joint venture partners. And uh, we, you know, we can give you a link to the group there for your, for your listeners if they want to join. But yeah, I mean, that's one group there. I mean, there's tons, there's tons on Facebook. It sounds fair. So is there anything that you really, you felt that you learned from this best deal that you've done? I would probably say just now, well, a couple of things I, I didn't learn, but I really appreciated what experience can do for you. Like having experience in real estate, having experience with building connections, having experience with learning how to talk to sellers, right? Learning how to negotiate, learning how to write an offer to purchase without a realtor. So these skills, if I didn't have, if I didn't learn those skills in the previous years, it would have been very hard to actually close that deal. Right. So really just appreciating that and not really of anything I did, but just over time, right over time. And again, this is why uh, in business or in real estate, it's really a long term game. So the more you're in it, the more again failures you have or even successes, but really more failures, you just get better and better at your skills. So that's I think that was one huge thing that moved this deal forward. And then just my network. Right. Again, having a good lawyer have potential for this deal, potential builders that could possibly buy the property from us, right? So all of these things came into play. Very cool. Very cool. How big is your network currently, do you think, on your CRM? My network of real estate investors? Yeah. I'd say maybe about three, four hundred. Okay. Three, four hundred, like locally. And then I, I have investors across Canada, of course, but mainly it's where we live. Sounds fair. Just so we yeah. can give the uh, listeners a ballpark to what to shoot for in the future. Yeah, for sure. Sounds fair. So we'll switch gears here a little bit. What was the worst deal you've ever done? What was the plan and what went right or wrong? Mm, good question. Worst deal we probably did was a house flip. Again, maybe three or four years ago where we ended up buying this property and you know we ended up paying too much for the property because the, the comparables at the time were a lot were a lot higher than we, sorry, they were a lot lower than what we thought. Again, I, I got these comparables and we didn't have a lot of projects going on at that time. So we actually moved a little bit hasteful. You know, we ended up buying the property and again, right from the get-go, right? We bought it too high. The comparables were too low. There was a condominium in the back, which, you know, which was a, a huge factor from people buying it. They didn't want to, they didn't want a condo in the backyard. And, and so we didn't think it was a big deal. So there was just a lot of judgment. It was just like a lot of things that we thought, I guess, errors and judgment. So where it caused the deal to go wrong and just sit, sitting on the market too long, right? We were paying about a 12% return to our investor. And because this property was a, it was in a, in a good area, we obviously borrowed more because it was in a good area. And I mean, the, the interest, you know, the interest payments every single month, like they, um, or it was just draining our account. And, and that was probably the, the worst deal we've ever done. It sounds right? but, but in that, in that deal, we learned a lot. We learned a ton on how not to buy a deal. Right. So, but you know what I I've learned, I've taken those lessons from that deal and I've applied it to other ones throughout the years. How long was that property sitting on the market for? I, I think it was good, maybe four or five months. Mm. 
Yeah, mm -hmm. so four or five months. I think the investor made the most money in that deal. Yeah. yeah. Thank thankfully we we gave them their money back. This is good. This yeah, is that good. is always good. Always gotta pay the investor. 100 percent So do you mind just breaking down the numbers here for us? How much should if if you remember them? Do you remember yeah. how much you paid for it? You know what? It's vaguely because it was a while ago, but I know at the end of the day, like we bought it for maybe, and again, I'm just guessing here, but I think it was around 300,000. We put in about $40,000 of renovations. And I think we ended up selling it at like 350 or 355 after paying a 4% commission. And, you know, all in all, at the end of the day, Jeremy, I think it was, I think we were in the hole for about 50 grand. Ouch. Okay. Yeah. That yeah, hurts. so I, it was a blessing to you just get out of the deal, right? It was, uh, and for, for your viewers, and I, I know there's a lot of that going on right now because the market has shifted so much where people bought a property at the beginning of 2022 and everything was good or, or even in the mid 2022. And now the market changed in the last six months or the interest rates changed. And then, you know, they took out a bunch of buyers out and the values dropped and people who had five or six flips on the go, I mean, some of them, you know, they're, they're not in the business anymore. That's very unfortunate. Are are you seeing lots of that over in Winnipeg? Some, some, not not a lot, but yeah, I've I've we've heard of stuff like that happening for sure. Okay, I'm. I want to touch on the interest rate thing here in just a moment. Here, what are you currently seeing in the market in Winnipeg? I know that we're recording this in early twenty three, so. Mm -hmm. Well, you... I mean, it's you know, I, I I'd say with the five big banks, it's pretty it's pretty average, right? It's a national average property right now. Again, this is in in March 2023, and it historically spring market is always hotter. It starts picking up. You know, people want to sell and people want to start looking for properties. The snow's melting, so I, I do feel like the property values. I think they're slowly going to start going up as maybe the interest rates go down. And again, it's all speculative at this point. But I think a lot of the a lot of the buyers are going to enter the market again. And I think there probably will be a bit of bidding wars because I don't I don't think there's enough on the market right now, especially where we are. And I do see that trend a little bit in other or other places of Canada. And I mean you would know more in Edmonton. Yeah, here I I think the last three properties I looked at, which are all this week, have gone for over I think it was 10 Minimum was 10 bids on a property in a first day. Yeah. So there you go. And it's all, yeah, it's already taking place. Yeah. I know Calgary is seeing it. I think it's below 3% vacancy, which is absolutely absurd. And they're seeing, multi, again, multiple offers. I'm hoping they're not as many as we're seeing here in Edmonton, but things are moving yeah. quite quickly. So, okay. So with your BERT, you're doing the BERT strategy mostly. How have the interest rate changes affected you? It it definitely has a little bit because when we bought some of these properties, you know, on them, you're, you're not able to lock in, you know, you're not locking in your rate or anything. So I think from the, the deals that we had maybe three or four months ago, that, that, that was a four month hold or it was a four month rental. We didn't factor in that it would jump up, right? Like from say two and a half to three, then four, then five and a half percent. So yeah, we're definitely feeling it on the cash flow side, especially the properties that we're closing on. It's it's gotten a lot slower. And and even the properties that we're analyzing right now, it's really hard to run the numbers, especially if you're you're trying to find a deal, right? You're trying to find a deal flow-wise. Again, I mean, in other markets of Canada, like BC or Ontario, I can't even imagine like it's it's really hard to find a deal right now. But you're yeah, again, you don't want to you don't want to be timing the market either. I think it's just having that perspective of like, yeah, interest rates could be two and a half. They could be five and a half. 
but the business is about long term, right? It's it's about investing in the market. It's not timing the market, it's time in the market that's really going to make you money. So whether it's two and a half percent or five and a half, which is still relatively low as what we were people were paying in like the late 80s and 90s, right? 15%, 16%. I think you need to have reserves if you're buying a property, especially with yourself or a partner. You need to have a reserve in there, not just for like a rainy day fund, but to cover those maybe negative cash flow months, right? Where your property is is maybe not breaking or it's breaking even, but if you need some overages, you have it there. I think you you even in this interest rate environment, I think you still need to find a good deal because that's where you're controlling the purchase, right? You make money on the buy. So if you can buy it under 50, 60K under market value, uh, turnkey, or even more, if it's a true burr, that's where you're going to make the money. Right. Yes, cash flow, that's great. But I mean, appreciation, mortgage pay down, that's really where you're going to be making a return on your investment. Before the interest rate hikes, what kind of cash flow were you aiming for on your bird? So we we don't have a number per se, but I mean I, I try per per unit. Again, single families are different from duplexes, triplexes, but we, we try to average around like you know, two fifty to three fifty per unit. That's fair. Of positive what... cash flow. What are you currently seeing right now with with the interest rate hike changes? We're seeing almost, you know, break. So I'll give you an example. I looked at a triplex the other day. It is a it is turnkey, and we're again that's not our model. If you don't want to be buying turnkey, but we're trying to negotiate with the seller right now. You know, they're asking three eighty nine, three eighty nine. It's almost four hundred grand, and you know we're using about five and five, five point two on this deal. And I mean, at the end of the day, based on the rents that it's getting, it's I think it's 150 bucks in the positive, like for all the units, right? So again, low cap rate, low return on your investment. You know, I forgot what it was, 7%. So it's nothing attractive. So definitely it's hurting. I mean, if that was in a norm, again, I don't know what normal is, but if it was like two and a half, 2.5, like, yeah, you'd be seeing a lot, lot stronger cash flow on that deal. That's fair. That's fair. Okay. What, just because you brought up cap rates, in Winnipeg, what are you currently seeing for cap rates on multifamily? Again, it's it depends on the area, right? So depending on what area you're in, and I mean, obviously C and B neighborhoods, like kind of rougher neighborhoods, yeah, you, you'll see like a seven, seven and eight, seven, eight, eight percent cap rate. And I mean, if you're in an a, a plus neighborhood, right, good good tenants, yeah, like four, I'd say four or five, somewhere around that, right? Like low, like again, you're. It, you're paying for the dirt, right? You're paying for the area in those areas. But, uh, you know, if you can try to shoot for like a, a B neighborhood with a eight or 9% cap with with a bump in future equity and, and rent increase, that's what you want to go for. Okay. That's very interesting. What, just for the listeners who aren't super familiar with Winnipeg, is there kind of like different neighborhoods that you would say are closer to A or B type neighborhoods? A or B, oh yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It depends where you where you are. A and B, yeah. I mean, there, you know, there's like seven, eight hundred thousand people here, so there, there's quite a few of those neighborhoods, right? So it really depends on your price range and affordability and and what you're really after, right? Those A neighborhoods, they are gonna appreciate stronger, right, than a C or B neighborhood, but your cash flow is gonna be a lot lower, right? Your return on your investment is going to be a lot lower in my opinion, because you're, you're paying premium. That's fair. Do you mind just sharing some of those neighborhoods that, that you do like investing in? 
Yeah, so we we try again. We we have properties all over the city, but what we're trying to do is try to keep everything close. But you know, we live in a neighborhood close to a neighborhood called Transcona, which is the east side of Winnipeg. So we we try to keep properties in this area. But you know, B B type of neighborhoods, North Kildonan, you know, C type of neighborhoods, West Kildonan, and then you obviously have your core. But the certain parts like the south end of Winnipeg, that's more of your A A neighborhoods or your southwest of Winnipeg, like River Heights or Charleswood or Tuxedo. These are more of your A type neighborhoods that, uh, and that's more, yeah, I would say more, uh, yeah, I would say more west west part of the city. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah you bet. So looking at this worst deal that you did do, how did you recover from it? Did you just take all the um, losses? Yeah, I covered the losses from our corp. So uh, thankfully we we had the money in, in the bank and our corporation. And uh, yeah, I mean, we just kept doing deals. We kept buying deals. We kept buying, obviously we bought good deals going forward. You know, we bought more good good properties than bad ones. And yeah, we recovered, right? We got out of it and uh, and then we just kept continuing to buy. So I think for us, it's because we had done deals before this one that we had money in the account, right? We weren't just starting off with this one bad deal. I mean, it's unfortunate some people do buy that that one bad deal as their first one and then they're out of the game, right? So, uh, but fortunately for us, we we had a track record, we had money and then we just knew sometimes you do buy a bad deal and uh, right, you buy a bad deal, but you gotta, again, keep that long-term perspective and we kept doing real estate. We we bought properties going forward. I mean, this was like four years ago, right? So we recovered that and then we kept investing and that's what happened. And yeah, you know, we've bought a couple of bad deals here and there, but majority of them have been profitable. And, and again, it's, you want to keep your eye on that, right? Like doing, yeah, not so much numbers, but making sure you're, you're consistently purchasing and that you also have, you know, reserve funds, you have money in the bank, to cover things like if this happens or if the market changes. I think people just sometimes will buy too much at the buy too much at the wrong time and that's all the money they have. It's in real and then their account gets wiped out and you know they have to go look for a job or something. Yeah. That that does make it pretty tough. Yeah. Is there a rule of thumb that you have for reserve funds? How much you should be keeping on hand for rainy whether rainy day or negative cash flows, as you've mentioned? I would, I guess, I could talk in terms of like rentals. So when we buy a rental, either with a partner, I don't have a percentage, but you know, we we like to have at least like you know five to eight grand as a reserve fund from day one on closing. So mm -hmm. when you know if there is a vacancy or if there is you know, we, we maybe didn't, we overlooked the furnace and the furnace, the furnace crapped out on like two weeks after closing, at least we have money there. And so what I do is when I'm buying a property with a partner, I, I make sure in our, in our JV agreement that they know that part of their principal that they're putting in on top of down payment and the closing costs, they have to cover the reserve fund. That's so when we, yeah. Then when we do refi, that's part of the initial funds that they get back. So again, just being intentional about it, letting your partner know, or even if it, you're buying it by yourself, making sure you do have a reserve fund and your reserve fund is not your line of credit or credit cards like like most investors have. That's one easy way to get into trouble. So yeah, for sure. For sure. So what kind of lessons do you feel that you've learned from this deal? Um, lessons, I, I would say not to rush a deal, right? Like take your time running the numbers, take your time looking at the comparables and don't don't put pressure on yourself to to get the deal done 
because you, you know you just want something to work on, right? You need something to work on. And that was our mistake at that time. We we had sold a couple of properties. We were already full-time investors. We didn't have anything else going on. And just again, so we we tried to make the numbers work on this. Again, another lesson, don't do that. Don't try to make the numbers work. That was a huge lesson. And the, the other thing is, is really you have to buy correctly, right? Whether it's 60, 70 cents on the dollar, you have to make sure that you're buying properties under market value, especially if you're flipping them, right? Because that's the whole business is making a profit. So the lower you can buy them, the more money you're going to make. So if the numbers are a little bit tight and you're trying to like fudge things like, oh, I'm going to make the renovations work or I'll, I'll try to get materials myself or this or that, you're forcing the deal and that's always that's already a bad sign that you're you're trying to force the deal and you don't want to do that you want the numbers to work for themselves the numbers speak for themselves don't get emotionally that is absolutely wonderful advice i cannot echo that enough that's how everyone gets injured and me physically getting injured from <laughs> not listening to that advice so mm -hmm. thank you sir so what advice would you give to investors in your area who are looking to scale their business investors in my area I guess it really depends what they're trying to do, right? At the, like, what are their goals? It really comes down to what is your goal? What sort of lifestyle are you after, right? It's it's not really about how many deals do you want to do? Well, what, what do you want to do with the money? Like, what why are you even doing real estate, right? Really going meta on that question. You know, do you want more cash flow at the end of the month? Do you want to quit your job? Do you want to just supplement your job because you like what you're doing? Do you want to have more in retirement? Uh, so that's, kind of the questions that we like to ask first, you know, especially with the clients that we work with in our training program, uh, we try to get those questions answered. And then from there, back engineer it. Well, what's the fastest way to get you to X, Y, Z, right? Is it going to be flipping? Is it going to be buying rentals? Again, based on what what's the lifestyle you're after? What are you trying to accomplish in your business right now? And what strategy may be out there, whether you're working with yourself or with partners is going to help you get there and, and really make it sustainable the whole time. Great advice. Absolutely love it. <laughs> Sounds good. So we'll roll over to our new segment here. What are three things that most people don't know about you? Three things most people don't know. Hmm. Well, I, I don't know if most people wouldn't know this, but I'm, I'm married to my beautiful wife, Jill, and we got the two young kids. I guess what some people wouldn't know is my wife. I actually met her in real estate. So at the time, you know, I was just starting our like training or consulting side of the business. And she was one of the very first few clients that actually hired me to like train her or coach her. And so probably most people wouldn't know that. And, you know, again, fast forward, we ended up getting married and we got kids together. So yeah, my wife's actually a previous investor. She was, she was flipping houses before we met and um, she runs a company called She Buys Houses. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what else to say. Like I, I love traveling and, you know, every every year now for the last couple of years, we we take off for a couple of months down south to Mexico. So we we started snowbirding and uh, which has been great. We we just spent um, a month or so in Mexico and, you know, God willing, we'll, we'll do it again or maybe go somewhere else. What You live in Winnipeg. Why would you need to go snowbirding? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, but yeah, no, we, we love, we love travel. I'm always itching every, every, seems like every three months I want to go somewhere, but we love doing that. It sounds good. Other than Mexico, is there anywhere else on the agenda you'd want to travel? Yeah, for sure. We, we've been thinking, we've had some friends go to like Costa Rica. So that's really on our list. I'd love to go there and then checking out, you know, Bali and, and Europe. That's another, like on that continent, we've never been there. 
So I'd love to go there one day and probably wait till the kids are older so you can enjoy it more. How old are the kids now? Uh, two and five. Okay. Yeah. Might be a little bit of chasing around then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Sounds fair. Perfect. And one other thing, something that I absolutely love about you is you talk about being able to raise other people's money and being able to leverage it so much. Would you be able to share, I guess, just some of your success stories in, in doing so? Sure. Any Anything in particular you want to know? Uh, no, I, I know you've done so much with it. I don't even know where to begin. So I, I just love hearing some of the things that you've done. Yeah, for sure. So we've been, we've been raising money for, I'd probably say about seven or eight years. I started buying real estate with our, our own cash, our own credit, saving up money, you know, again, the tr- traditional way. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I, or not a few years ago, probably eight years ago, that I partnered up with a couple of people I knew locally, and they actually had access to capital through their family and just kind of like, you know, learning through osmosis, learning and being around them, I was able to really develop those skills of raising money. And because I have a background as a financial planner, so I used to sell life insurance, mutual funds, segregated funds, TFSAs. I really understood money and investment and really knew how to speak that language. So I think that mixed with just being in real estate around the right people, I was able to start talking to people about investing. And at that time, we we were primarily doing flips. So we would raise money, all cash from a private lender, you know, where we would pay them maybe a 10%, 12% sometimes plus one, one or half a point and then buy all that property cash. So we kept doing it again because we were we were doing about seven or eight projects a year, you know? And so we started doing that. And then eventually a couple of years back, we we decided to change our strategy and get into more long-term holds. And again, we, all, we already had a few properties under our belt. So at that time, because we didn't have a job or anything, we were, we needed investors. Like that's how we really wanted to scale. And I mean, there's other ways to scale. You can do vendor financing or VTB and, and things like that. But that's our, our model is, is more of the JV route. So again, we raised money. And because I was really good at raising money privately, like on the private side, short-term debt side, I was able to go to these investors and find other ones that were that had money that they wanted to get in real estate, but they didn't really have the knack for it. They didn't have a team. They didn't know how to analyze. They didn't know how to manage tenants, hire contractors, nor did they want to. And because I was able to go there and offer these people my expertise, because I ha- I already had a bit of a track record and because I can manage it and really just make it like hands-free for them, they were able to trust me and, and really partner up with me. So that's kind of how we got our start. And I mean, we've, we've been working with investors for, for years now. We've, you know, we've purchased close to about a buying and selling close to about 140 properties now, and primarily with the OPM, like other people's money. And, and, you know, we're probably going to continue to do that because I really do enjoy that. That's awesome. Very glad to hear it. Very inspirational too. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Yeah, you bet. Perfect. So just before we get out of here, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, if people want to stay connected with me, they can they can add me on Instagram. It's just my first name, Manjit underscore Rukra, M-A-N-J-I-T underscore R-U-K-H-R-A. They can find me on Facebook, same same first name, last name. They can connect with me like on our YouTube channel. We got a bunch of videos there and, and a lot of free resources. Or they can even even join our, our public group, our OPM group that, uh, that I mentioned earlier. So yeah, those are some of the ways that people can connect and, and reach out to us. And if they want to find out a little bit more about 
kind of what we do and, and how we help investors that are, you know, brand, either brand new to real estate or they've been investing for a while and they're just kind of getting tapped out of funds where they can start buying multiple deals a year. They can go to our website, uh, prosperpath.com to just find out more about our work. Awesome. Awesome. But what was the name of your YouTube channel again? It's just my uh, name. Okay. Yeah. Sounds yeah. Super easy. Omanjeet, thank you very much. You bet. Thank you for having me.